Opinions and views expressed on Alaska Outdoors magazine are not necessarily the opinions and views of staff and management of KBYR. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Alaska Outdoors magazine. Welcome to Alaska Outdoors Magazine with host Evan Swenson. You're invited to come along with us as we bring you accurate and authentic answers for Alaskans by Alaskans. It's your KBYR window to Alaska's outdoors. If it's in the outdoors and in Alaska, it's right here on Alaska Outdoor Magazine. Now here's Evan Swenson, your host for Alaska Outdoor Magazine. I'm Evan Swenson, and today my guest is uh, Brian Horner of LTR Training Systems. We'll be talking to Brian about learning ways to ensure we have a safe, comfortable time in Alaska's outdoors. We'll pause in the conversation for t and go to Ty Cunningham for Ty's tracking tip. We'll talk with Brian Horner of LTR Training Systems, pause for Ty Cunningham's uh, tr uh, tracking tip, and save time for one last cast. Today's one last cast is titled, Enough and to Spare. Now let's talk. Let's talk with Brian Horner of uh, LTR Training Systems. Uh, Brian from uh, uh, was, was talking a little bit before the show, and uh, you was talking about all these acronyms that we're going to have. Is LTR one of those as well? Yes, it is, Evan. <laughs> Actually, uh, about 12 years ago when we first uh, started the company, we had to think about something that would make people uh, realize that it was education that we were teaching just as well as skills. So LTR stands for Learn to Return. Of course, that's the, you know, the positive outcome as well if all this goes well. Okay, Learn to Return. Of course, that has the, the whole meaning of what we're going to be talking about Of course, today. Evan, if you don't pay attention in class, it could be left to rot. It's got to be realistic about this. <laughs> so pay attention is what you're saying that's today. Right. I'm, uh, you have my attention now. Uh, many of us from time to time uh, have been and will be, uh, have some emergency either in an automobile or a boat, airplane, or just uh, out walking, hunting, getting lost, or going to the fishing stream and stay too long and it gets dark, or, you know, some circumstances that we need to, to learn to return. In a survival situation in Alaska, uh, Brian, what, uh, in your opinion, is the first thing to do? Well, you know, people are always trying to trying to pin me and my instructors down on what the first thing is that anybody should do. And I think one reason is that a little bit of uh, confidence comes out of a, of a checklist. I mean, anything that we can say, whether we're flying an airplane or the astronaut's getting ready to uh, bring the shuttlecraft down, he wants a, a certain order of things to do. The problem inherent with survival situations is that they can happen to pretty different speeds. I mean, driving at 55 miles an hour on your snow machine and you impact a tree, I mean, that's a pretty rapid onset survival scenario, not much time to think. Mm -hmm. However, uh, a guy gets uh, lost or separated from his hunting partner or stands in his waders too long in the cold water, I mean, that's a pretty slow onset scenario. I mean, they can both end the same way, but I mean, really there's some more time to think with the slow ones. Uh -huh. So I would say that the checklist, first off, help people who don't have time to think, like the pilot and the snow machiner, and, or excuse me, um, uh, individuals crashing an aircraft and that, you know, it's got to be done fast. But typically, we divide it into six areas, all right? We have something called the his-her principle. Uh, You're politically and, correct. In exa it. Exactly. <laughs> it is politically correct, as I said earlier. And uh, it's an acronym that sends, it stands for hazards, injury, shelter, and then heat, energy rescue in, in that specific order. And then that's the order in which you would uh, approach in priority? Is that what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, if we're looking for a generic way to approach all scenarios, I think that would be the best order that you would we'd go in. And it was originally designed not for survivors, but for rescue people uh -huh. who were going into a rescue. And then uh, we started to, after we invented it, we started kind of applying it to most every environment. 
So I uh, say that again. What it's his his her his her hazard injury shelter heat energy rescue. Uh, let me give you an example. Okay. Uh, first thing you do is remove individuals from the hazard. If, uh, if it's an airplane, if the boat's sinking or whatever, yeah, you get them off. If okay. the boat's sinking and they're trapped in the cabin, or you can see that they're going to be uh, in the sinking helicopter that, of course, sinks pretty fast. You got to get them out. and You got to get out now. We're not really thinking about anything else. Uh, if the individual is uh, in an avalanche slope and they're buried under the snow, I mean. You know, you can send people for help all you want, but by the time they get back, t- you know, t- typically they're not going to be alive. So mm-hmm. your best thing is remove them from the hazard. Dig them up, get them to the dry land, get them out of the aircraft. Then fix their medical problems. That's now, does that uh, uh, hazard, that also applies for yourself. I, I, you know, you're, you're talking about rescuing someone else. If, if you yourself are there and, the, and the, by yourself or the lone survivor or the one that's conscious or whatever, it gets yourself out as well. I exactly. Suppose. You hear the crack of the ice and you're on the snow machine. It's time to make a decision. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whether it be go faster or whether it be spread your weight or whether it be something else, you know, or get ready. But uh, still, it, it, the hazard's there and you're trying to reduce the hazard as quickly as you can. So get away from the hazard. That's the H. Right. Uh, The next thing is injuries. And, you know, it seems like injury, you know, the only real cure for trauma and all these things is prevention. I mean, you know, once someone's hurt, they're hurt. And uh, with our research, and when you compare a snow machiner and uh, a commercial fisherman or an aviation accident, everybody's hurt. I mean, you know, it's the nature of high velocity. You've got a fast vehicle that all of a sudden hits a tree or hits the ice or whatever it may be. People are going to keep moving, and they're going to get hurt. So we teach what we call the three Bs, uh, get them breathing, stop their bleeding, and find out if they're broken. And then from there, honestly, it's, it's pretty much nursing after that. Keep them warm, keep them dry, and, and find a way to, to try to get calories and water into them. So get them away from the hazard, determine if they have injuries, or determine if you have injuries, whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. And then that's the... Uh, First two, and then shelter. Uh, shelter. Go right for shelter. So a sleeping bag, coat... Not, uh, I wouldn't say not, not even jumping that head, that far ahead to a sleeping oh yeah? bag because we find a lot of, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't see many hunters carrying their sleeping bag on their backs. Sure. And what's ironic is the National Rifle Association typically says, when the two hunters get hypothermic, take your sleeping bag and do this. And we don't see that. We see that hypothermic scenarios occurring away from camp, away mm-hmm. from the base camp on a sheep hunt or, or you're uh, not carrying much load. In fact, the only load you're carrying is a moose quarter. And then it's kind of a different decision here. You've got to roll up all your... You know, all your collars, roll down all your buttons, stuff your clothing full of whatever insulation you might have, crinkle up pieces of newspaper and stuff that into make a dead airspace, uh, crank your, uh, your, your hat down over your ears. And what's weird is that when a person gets lost or afraid, they typically roll their, ear, their hats up. Um, I don't, ever been in a car, listen to your own radio station, get lost? What's the first thing you do even though you love this channel? Turn down the radio. That's right. And uh, people want to hear in in episodes, Uh and if you reduce their hearing, they don't seem to do as well. Hmm. So button up the hatches, as we say, and try to get yourself out of the wind. Okay. Well, that's the his part. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about the hers part when we come back from the uh, break. We are going to uh, take a break, but we'll be right back. And when we come back, we'll go to Ty Cunningham for Ty's tracking tip. We'll continue with our visit with the Brian Horner of LTR. LTR training systems and we'll save time for today's one last cast titled Enough and to Spare. Stay tuned to Alaska Outdoor Magazine, your KBYR window to Alaska Outdoors. You're listening to Alaska Outdoor Magazine on 700 KBYR. To join in our conversation with host Evan Swenson, call 561-3260 and don't worry, you won't miss a minute of Alaska Outdoor Magazine. We're on hold at 561-3260. There's an author masterminds book by Robin Bearfield, Alaska wilderness mystery author, Murder Over Kodiak. 
When a float plane mysteriously explodes over the Alaska wilderness, investigators begin digging. Was the target of the bomb the U.S. senator or her husband, the cannery owner, the refuge manager, or the pilot? You'll find all of Robin's Alaska Wilderness Mystery Novels with the Publications Consultant's logo on the cover at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and everywhere good books are sold. If you'd like to be an Author Mastermind's published author like Robin Bearfield, Alaska Wilderness Mystery Author, Publication Consultants can help. If you've written a book, if you're writing a book, or if you're thinking about writing a book, call for the free booklet, Bringing Your Book to Market. Call 349-2424. Murder Over Kodiak was just a dream until Robin Bearfield ordered her own Bringing Your Book to Market. Publication consultants will send you the booklet free. Call 349-2424 for the free booklet Bringing Your Book to Market. 349-2424. Robin Bearfield called, and now Murder Over Kodiak is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and everywhere good books are sold. Welcome back to your KBYR window to Alaska Outdoors, Alaska Outdoor Magazine. We're glad you decided to come along with us. And now it's time for Ty Cunningham's uh, Tuesday's Ty's Tracking Tip. Well, we'll get our tongue all tangled up in tease, Ty, so <laughs> good afternoon. How are you, Evan? <laughs> we're going gonna to have to do some tracking to keep from stumbling on the tease if we keep that up. <laughs> That's right. The articulation changes. That's right. <laughs> well, what are we going to track today, and how are we going to do it? Well... I had a situation the other night that I kind of want to bring the listeners' attention. I was out with my boy in the snow, and we were uh, on a line of sign of moose, and uh, we were following the moose, and I was trying to teach him the very fundamentally still young, so trying to keep it in his language so he'd understand it. And it began to snow pretty heavy. And uh, a tracker, his main obligation when he's out there on a line of sign is to find every single step that is the standard to start skipping tracks is difficult uh, for a beginner to learn what he needs to learn if all he's looking for is the obvious ones because uh -huh. the obvious ones don't always uh, show up where we think they should be and when we do find them we don't know in the line of sign, whether or not they're actually part of the line of sign we're on or if it's another animal walking into our line of sign. And so my boy began to get kind of nervous out there saying, Dad, I'm, I'm having a hard time finding uh, the next track. And uh, to be honest, all these years of teaching law enforcement, military, and search and rescue groups, and even outdoorsmen tracking, this was one of those nights that you dread as a tracker because you like to have some credence in your ability to interpret what you see on the ground. Yeah, especially for your son. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, we proceeded, I had to proceed to show him that even though you can see the sign, it's not necessarily as important as interpreting what you see, and uh, we have to take it in steps. But what I wanted everyone out there, your listeners, to know today We've discussed a few things in weeks previous about tracking and what it is and observation and what to look for. But the goal 
if you're tracking, is to find all 99 out of 99 steps of whatever you're tracking, whether it's an animal or a man, so that you can learn the proper skills on how a body, whether it's an animal or a human, moves in relation to what they put on the earth when they're walking. And uh, that was quite the experience. And I know the out, me being an outdoorsman myself out in the bush, I find it difficult sometimes, especially in heavy snow, to find, uh, to find my next track. But I don't proceed past that, even if there's an obvious one I can see in a training environment. Now, with search and rescue and uh, other type where you have a body out there that might be, uh, you know, freezing or whatever, and you got to pick up step, then there's other methods in the tracking profession dealing with cutting sign and so forth that, of course, is probably uh, as much time I get on the radio, probably, you know, a good year or two down the road on these, you know, one-week spots. But uh, I want everyone to know that don't miss one track, one piece of sign when you're learning how to track because every little piece gives you information that you must interpret to find out what the person's thinking, what the animal's thinking, what they're doing, whether they were scared, whether uh, they were burdened, whether they were looking for water, whether they're trying to find a place to sleep, or uh, and all every step tells you that. So if you start skipping, you start skipping information in your story. It's kind of like reading a book, taking a page, reading the first two lines, and then skipping down to the bottom, reading the last two lines, and you don't know what the story said. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's kind of where I wanted to go today. It was kind of a neat experience for my boy. Well, uh, Ty, uh, some years ago I read uh, Brown's book on the track. The, I think, think it was called The Tracker. Yes, sir. And you've, I'm sure you've read that. Yes, sir. And uh, his teacher uh, took him out there barefoot. Now, did you make your boy go barefoot? Well, no. <laughs> and, not, and you weren't barefoot either, I'll bet. No, I was not. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I do believe there's some credence in primitive skills. Uh, however, we're, we're logical people, too. And uh, I think that in training... Uh, no matter what you're training, if it's survival, I heard you got Brian on there. I, I, I can't give a professional endorsement from the U.S. Marshal Service, but I can give a personal one. Uh, what Brian and his uh, people are doing with their company is a good thing, and people need to take the courses. There's so many people out here that come up to the state thinking that this state is a way they can go out and experience, but this state, let me tell you, it, you can just walk out your back door and one be lost, and two, uh, die that night. Those are the type of courses people need to take. And tracking is so fundamental to our existence and goes back all the way to the beginning of man, not only for you know our survival in uh, hunting and gathering, but also uh, you know in warfare and uh, keeping ourselves safe and uh, survival. So uh, I just hope that everyone's listening and those people who are, if they can get another person each week to come on and listen uh, learn a little bit about tracking and look up different uh, ways to learn survival and outdoor type things uh, it would make it a uh, better state learn to return as brian says that's LTR. Right. <laughs> well if you're going to go out there no, no sense going out thinking you ain't coming back sure <laughs> okay well thanks ty i appreciate that hey we'll see you okay T- talk to you next tuesday 
Well, now let's talk uh, some more with Brian Horner of LTR, Learn to Return Training Systems. That was uh, interesting, uh, the things that Ty said about your uh, courses. Uh, Brian, I, I was actually just sitting here trying to, to think if I've ever tortured Ty or not. <laughs> uh, that was my first thought. Uh, but uh, And I would honestly say that this tracking that he's talking about, uh, I got to see a demonstration of that last year when I lost my best knife that I've had for 17 years in hmm. the uh, Ariz- excuse me the uh, Texas desert and we had a border patrol tracker uh, down there who I gave up said there's no way you'll find this he tracked me for 2 miles and found my knife is that right and I became a believer huh. after that and he would see things like Ty was saying that I could never see because I'm not a tracker and he wasn't looking and no. uh, the same thing that was he his was eyes that's, right that's yeah well, let's go back to this his and her. His, uh, we had established, was his, was the, the hazard. Uh, the, the I was the injury. You can get out of the injury. The H-I-S, the S was shelter. Right. And we start talking about that, but I'm not sure we covered that uh, to the depth well, that we it was, should. It was just the buttoning up exercise. Uh-huh. You know, the problem is that I can teach that over the radio, but, boy, teaching someone how to build a uh, lean-to shelter or an A-frame or a classic igloo, which it seems like every student wants to learn, even though there are easier shelters. That's the hard part. So, I mean, shelter still included in there, the classic primitive skills. Uh-huh. But I'm kind of like thinking like your last caller, Ty, said, and that is start out with the intelligence stuff. You know, you, mm-hmm. got, you got clothing on. Let's see if we can improve that. Yeah. And then from there, jump to the next one, which is heat. Heat. And now that's, the, that's the H of, uh, of her. Yeah, and you know what's so funny is that we've got a lot of people who basically they light a lot of barbecue grills, they, mm-hmm. they light a lot of cigarettes, they, you know, they light candles and incense burners in their house, and they try to apply that skill to the wilderness, and it's not the same skill. I mean, those things are being lit with no wind, you know, 70 degrees in your house, and uh, you know, your life not depending on it. And when we take students out and we say, okay, let's try to build a fire today, with this much material when it's wet or it's windy you see them struggling and, and it's almost a look of disbelief on their face because it's so easy in in the urban areas that we like to live and, and play in and go to the movies and, and things so we um we start students out by learning them how to split wood uh we teach them how to use bic lighters because a lot of people have bic lighters and then we progress them to flints and using uh, metal matches as some people like to refer to them uh, i mean that's one way to get heat and uh, I'll, I'll admit that we demonstrate uh, some strange fire building techniques to some clients that are out of the state. I mean, we have to demonstrate starting fire with rubbing two pieces of bamboo together for U.S. Customs, or we've got to bang flint together for El Paso when we're down there with their law enforcement people. Or, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, there's a tribe in the Philippines who start fires by compression. I mean, they, they actually duplicate a diesel engine. Really? I mean, it's a, and that's, of course, a skill that's very forgotten now. Mm-hmm. But uh, we can build a fire or we can run in circles. I mean, that's, you know, that's kind well, that's of... that's heat, too. Yeah, that's, too, sure. that's heat, yeah. too. And if you're physically uh, in good shape and you've got some food in your stomach, then heat can be generated in that way. And, and I've had some people who are very, very... Um, very physical who'd reached their limit as far as cold and they were shivering and they 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 couldn't move their hands even they asked me what to do i said get up start doing jumping jacks until you can use your hands because you're not hypothermic you are responding to the cold you bet but right about now it's time for you to get off this beach and do some push-ups get your heat up and then try to build a fire i've had my own sons and boy scouts in the outdoors from time to time uh, brian and and it seems like on the winter freezeries that they go on that uh, the fire never did produce heat enough heat to keep the boys warm if it was very cold. But the cutting and gathering of the wood always <laughs> always warmed them up. So I guess that's what you're talking about. As a fire, a fire kind of heats twice, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it does. It and, uh, but I will say that a mistake that survivors make is starting their fires too soon. 
Um, you know, the idea is that if you start a fire, then you inherently want to sit by it, and you'll stop gathering wood and stop foraging because of the, what we call the moth effect. Mm-hmm. You know, a bunch of moths to a light bulb. Sure. Um, and if you want to compare media that you're in, well, you know, survival is basically uh, PBS. It's one channel. Everybody watches. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And uh, once it's on, uh, you have a hard time turning it off. <laughs> well, we're going to take a break, uh, Brian, but we'll be right back. And when we come back, we'll talk to Vicki Solberg from the Natural Pantry. We'll continue our visit with Brian Horner of LTR Training Systems. And we'll save time later in the show for today's one last cast titled Enough and to Spare. Stay tuned to Alaska Outdoor Magazine, your KBYR window to Alaska Outdoors. You're listening to Alaska Outdoor Magazine on 700 KBYR. There's an author masterminds book by Steve Levi, master of the impossible crime, The Matter of the Vanishing Greyhound. An impossible crime novel where a greyhound bus with four bank robbers, $10 million in cash, the contents of all of the safety deposit boxes, and 12 hostages being followed by the San Francisco police vanish off the Golden Gate Bridge. You'll find all of Steve's impossible crime books with the publication consultant's logo on the cover at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and everywhere good books are sold. If you'd like to be an author mastermind's published author like Steve Levi, master of the impossible crime, publication consultants can help. If you've written a book, if you're writing a book, or if you're thinking about writing a book, call for the free booklet, Bringing Your Book to Market. Call 349-2424. The matter of the vanishing greyhound was just a dream until Steve Levi ordered his own Bringing Your Book to Market. Publication consultants will send you the booklet free. Call 349-2424 for the free booklet Bringing Your Book to Market. 349-2424. Steve Levi called, and now the matter of the vanishing greyhound is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and everywhere good books are sold. Welcome back to your KBYR window to Alaska Outdoors, Alaska Outdoor Magazine. We're glad you decided to come along with us. Now let's continue our talk with uh, Brian Horner, uh, Learn to Return Training Systems. I like that Learn to Return, uh, uh, Brian. we was getting, uh, we've got the his out of the road. We got to the H on uh, her being heat. Well, I took a, a course from, uh, from the FAA, FAA one time uh, about the uh, on survival, what to do in the survival thing. And, and they said that uh, one of the first things to do is to build a fire, not only for heat, but for the security, the, the well-being that that fire uh, gives. Is that really part of it or was uh, as far as your courses are concerned yeah and in fact i will honestly admit since we're on the topic of this that uh, one of my instructors just did an interview uh here about a month ago of three survivors from a an alaskan helicopter crash and they didn't uh, get a chance to start a fire until about 30 hours into their episode uh, on the side of a hillside and even though there's fuel everywhere from the helicopter but at 30 hours they uh, kind of mixed up the foam rubber and uh, gasoline and oil from the aircraft and put it together in a pan of sheet metal and finally lit it and one guy said you know i wasn't able to get all the way over to the fire but just seeing it he says i had the feeling that we were going to make it just Mm -hmm. because it was there where and he says maybe it was just a sign of technology just the fact that all of a sudden we weren't primitives anymore but we'd kind of made a step up and that was kind of a sign that the the, that rescue would be coming soon or we could make it at least that far Mm -hmm. so a fire would be a uh, 
definitely a psychological thing as well as providing heat. Oh, yeah. And I know I talked about the, the, the moth effect about, you know, people building their fire too soon. But I think mostly the, the point to make is that you may have some other things that should be done before it gets too dark, which is uh -huh. maybe gather more wood. Uh -huh. Because as you well know for being an outdoorsman, that wood and cold weather does not last all it, night long. It goes quick and, and the night is long. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> I was uh, flying back uh, one time. I left some young uh, guys uh, on a lake. I told him, now, I may not be able to get back and get you tonight, so uh, you better gather some wood. And I was gone a couple hours before I got back, and uh, they took it, took it to heart because I got back. They had half the forest piled up there. They could have lasted four days with their fire. We tell students, build a beaver lodge. Oh, that's, that's what right. they, <laughs> they built a big beaver lodge. That's right, because yeah. that's the size of the wood you need for the night. Yeah. Okay, so that's the H-I. Uh, or actually, what we're at to is energy now. Oh, energy. Her, oh, right. her. Well, yeah. yeah, we're in the. And I've said this so yeah. many times, you know, that it's, for me it's easy to keep track of. And by the time the students go through a program, they've seen it, the principle applied in a number mm -hmm. of ways. But you're going to find that energy is probably one of the bigger argument, I say, argumentative type of areas. Now, you you mean energy, human energy? Yeah. Uh, as far as not how, gathering wood. No, uh, no, but oh. how to get energy from your own body, like what mm -hmm. foods to eat, and you'll have a decathlon runner talk about how he has this certain powder that he drinks, and somebody else says, oh. You know, do nothing but drink, squeeze, parquet on Mount McKinley because the fat, you know, will help you stay warm. And then we got somebody who tells you to eat nothing but rice and beans. And you've got to first off eat what you like to eat. If it's inherent that if you have lots of it, then you'll eat more of it. Mm -hmm. and, and people think that that just because it's cold that they would have the feeling that they want to eat. But as I shared with you earlier when I went through that hypothermia drill this time at the fair, that after a point I didn't even want to eat anymore. It became too much of an effort to do anything when your body got that cold. So I would say first put things in there that you like to eat. Number two is um, stay away from the freeze-dried meals. There's really not much calories in them. I mean, a whole bag that you're buying for seven bucks costs you maybe about, uh, or you know, costs you seven bucks and gives you about 600 calories. You know, now I will say you can fix them. You can add sausage and cheese and fats and all that. But what we look at is survivors typically want about a 75% carbohydrate diet, diet, and you mostly find that in things like rice and pasta and crackers and cookies and those kind of things. And you can buy survival rations too that'll last you five, six years, have you know 4,000 calories in a brick that's five inches big, and, and it's, um, it's something that uh, you're not going to rob as much as you would a Snickers bar. Sure. And they do better than Snickers bars. I mean, really, if you're looking at shelf life and, and a good survival ration. And then, of course, hard candies and bullion cubes still uh, seem to round things out pretty well. So energy, once you got the fire going, get something deep. Right. Water, I guess. Hydration. hydration. Uh, well, actually, food, if you look at it, is pretty low down on a list of what you should put in a kit. I mean, food is like your fire sometimes, that it gives you a, a real psychological value to have a lifesaver or a butterscotch. Mm -hmm. um, water is, of course, pretty high up on the list. I mean, some environments, like the desert, which, believe it or not, this time of year, uh, when it drops to sub-freezing, we live in a desert. I mean, any moisture that we breathe out disappears. So, uh, you know, it's freeze-dried. So you're losing almost as much in Fairbanks at 35, 40 below as you are in the uh, Arizona desert. The oh, is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah because you're, very just, interesting. you're just pumping the moisture out. Uh -huh. And uh, the way I tell people is look at, at moisture both in the desert and the Arctic as radiator fluid. If you don't have a radiator fluid in either of those scenarios, something's going to happen to the engine. All right, you'll overheat in the desert, and basically in the Arctic, you you underheat. You can't spread heat if there's not enough fluid. I mean, the first thing it's going to do is start, you know, stopping the heat from getting your hands, your feet. Well, back to this, don't eat snow. Is that is that just a old wise tale or? There's 
there's lots of old wives' tales if we can use that old term, uh, but that one's a pretty much a true one, never eat snow. And in fact, if you look at the research, you will lose more calories and even you'll lose some fluid while trying to digest and trying to low or, me or, or melt snow into a usable water supply for yourself. You're, you'll end up hypothermic more than you'll end up hydrated, mm. as, we, as we like to say. Yeah. If you can get water, which I would say is pretty high on your list, you're, you're trying to go for two quarts a day if you possibly can, and uh, that's the minimum. Anything past that is, is going to be gravy for you. So uh, would water then be more important than food yes, by far? Uh -huh. by far. Even in this environment? Even in a life raft environment, even in the Arizona desert, mm. you know, which we would think is normal, but, you know, Alaska, if it's Arctic, talk to uh, men and women who climb McKinley, talk to Steiger and Shirky who went across the North Pole, and they will tell you that they concentrated on water. Water. That's mm. right. Well, back to the her, I, I would guess that probably the R is a... Uh, rescue well it can be it's rescue specifically but we even say rest meaning oh, re <laughs> rest until rescue comes okay, yeah. okay because now once you got all this stuff put together I, I did kind of share with you earlier that in some states the rescue uh, priority is taught very much earlier the idea is that if you get a good signal out and get some good flares up that there's less time that you have to be exposed to eating uh, squirrel bodies and pine cones as we say but our state's a little different I mean, our state has large search areas. Our state has a uh, false alarm rate that's very high on ELTs, mm -hmm. which has led us to slow down response sometimes. We also have um, false alarms with, with regular search and rescues that are reported, which now makes us wonder if it's a real search and rescue. Uh -huh. So what happens is we have longer searches. We do a little checking, I guess, before we run off yeah, the heat exactly. of the day without our blanket. Yeah, and yeah. I think the reason that we put rescue to the end is uh, we have seen people not take care of their priorities, and then rescue finds them eventually, but they're not in the state they'd like to be, which is alive. So we get everything done first, food, water, shelter, injuries, and then let's start putting out an SOS. Let's start trying to get smoke fires going. Let's start going ahead and getting our flares prepared. Be, be, pre be prepared to stay for an extended period of time and then worry about the, the rescue part of it. Right. Uh -huh. but, but, you know, the problem is that we've got a civilization like, like Ty had, had called in and mentioned, and, and that is that people aren't as willing to, to stay outdoors anymore. They want to carry the cell phone, which is one of the bigger rescue devices now, if you want to call sure. it that, to get them out quickly if something goes bad. Where we used to have men and women who would basically say, you know, if I get stuck overnight, no big deal. You know, I mean, if the bush pilot doesn't come for three days, it's just like last year and just like the year before. Yeah. Right? But without that experience, we have a lot of high-maintenance people who, when the heat goes out, and in fact, the secretary here mentioned to me after talking to me for a minute, she goes, you know, I'm afraid to death of us having an earthquake in Anchorage in January. Because the simple fact, you have both of or the of worst of both worlds an earthquake and severe cold sure and she says i don't know what i would do and i said well then now it's kind of time to think of that, 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 that <laughs> now's the time to think about it that's right what about self-rescue uh is there a time when you're at a crash site or something that you say hey i've got a if i'm going to get out of here i'm going to have to start walking or I, I would have to say that our our best course and our our most important course for teaching self-rescue is one that bush pilots up here would benefit by and helicopter pilots which is underwater aircraft escape training we take men and women faa or state government or anybody we strap you into an escape simulator teach you how to get out of it on the land very quickly finding doors and escape windows we take the same simulator and then we put you underwater with instructors who show you how to open a door underwater, how to push a push-out window. And this is true self-rescue training. Sure. Because if you can't do the skills in the average breath hold, which for me or you or anybody, it's 50 seconds. 
Okay, in warm water. We're under a minute. That's right. Oh, yeah, everybody. Natural, national hmm. average is really? under a minute. All right, and then take Alaska's water, which is cold, which now really makes you yeah. lose a little yeah. 20, 20% more. And you don't get a chance to take a deep breath before you go down no, either, do you? No, and in yeah. fact, we have two simulators, and one of them is a two-seater where you're now with a partner aiming for the same exact door underwater to get out. And we see men and women try to make deals all the time. They say, well, Evan, you go first, and I'll go second. I go, don't make no deals because if you've only got 30 seconds to hold your breath, you're only going to be thinking about one thing. That is, how do I get this door open? How do I get out of this aircraft? And how do I get to the surface? And in all honesty, if you look at statistics, 80% of the people who have got active underwater escape training, meaning they've gone through a float plane escape trainer or something like that, they live. When you look at who drowns in these episodes, and, that, and, I, and remember I said drowned. I didn't say they were killed by the crash. Sure. They drowned. The people who drown have never had any training. I mean, one last thing to consider. Look at the leading cause of death of a snow machiner in the United States. It's drowning. Is that right? Breaking it, through the ice? That's right. It is well, not. No trauma involved? Just no trauma. It, going it, it, in the water? It is, not, it is not classic exposure, as we would call it, long-term exposure. It's mm. simple, basic, unadulterated drowning. Well, let's say if you're out there, uh, Brian, and, and there's no injury, you've uh, crashed your airplane or you got lost or whatever. I, I remember they've always said, stay with the wreck. Is there a point where in five days, ten days, how long is it before you say, hey, I'm there, quit looking, I'm out of here? Well, uh, I would honestly say in our state that they're typically going to look for you for a pretty good time because mm -hmm. we know that we've had a history of longer-term uh, episodes. But I think you realize, and everybody else does, that eventually they are going to stop looking unless you're Wiley Post or mm -hmm. someone like that who crashes and, and, and you're pretty valuable to uh, politics or religion or something else. But the idea here is that when we look at interviews of people who got into trouble, that we can't ignore that some people do walk out. Mm -hmm. They know where they're at. They know their physical abilities. They got the right gear, the right boots, and they're pretty motivated because either one, it's their only way to live, or two, they're leaving somebody behind that they must get help for, or it will be their only way to live. Uh -huh. So they're motivated as well. But typically, we see very poor results with people who try to walk to away try from to walk, the walk. <laughs> Very similar to the outcome that occurred on the Denali Highway last year with uh -huh. the, the two folks and the child. Uh, it's just, it burns you out to work and walk at these temperatures. So you're erasing the, uh, the, the his and hers <laughs> with the last R. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We're, yeah, yeah. we're basically saying in most cases, rescue will come from the outside. But if you are going to look for rescue by yourself, then you better be tough. You better be prepared. You better be lucky. Now, that's what it takes if you're inexperienced to get through this, uh, you know, waist-deep snow or chest-deep snow. Well, Brian, you mentioned that you, have, that you teach uh, courses for FAA and the federal uh, law enforcement, state, federal, and uh, city law enforcement. Do you teach classes where individuals listening today might say, hey, I, maybe I'd like to do something like that? Yeah, we've got an open course schedule, in fact, that people can just uh, call and we'll fax them or mail them one of the packages that shows uh, when it's being taught and what the course titles are. Um, I will honestly admit that success makes it so that we have less availability for the normal uh -huh. civilian uh, that wants to come in. Let me uh, write down your phone number, uh, Brian. Uh, it's at 563-463-4463. Uh, 563-4463. Could I ask you the cost of a course like uh, that? It depends on, on the level of training you want to get. I mean, if uh -huh. you're going to look at underwater escape training, let's say, for which is you know, two simulators and a pool and all that, <laughs> you're looking at an average about $150 for a student for the day. But uh, 
I would suggest that anybody who looks at that and says, uh, well, that seems to be kind of expensive. I said, first off, have you priced ignorance lately? <laughs> um, and uh, number two is that I will turn your name over to any student who, of ours who would been through that training for you to talk to and ask them what they thought of it. Mm -hmm. And it is the biggest quantum leap. If they want to just learn the basics, we have a, a classroom and we have labs and hand-on. We do a one-day course they can get into for $110. Really? Yep, and they'll learn how to build fires. They'll learn how to treat uh, emergency injuries. Uh, they'll learn how to cut a, uh, a snow machine apart and a uh, automobile and make uh, improvised footwear out of it, which is probably the best thing to do with that foam seat after it doesn't run anymore. And uh, they'll learn about uh, frostbite and hypothermia and building their own kits. So for 110 bucks, you could get enough that uh, at least you'd be comfortable at the, the beginning of a of a trauma at you least. would be able to walk into any store in anchorage probably after that day it's about an eight-hour day and uh you'd be able to walk into any store and say that's a good item that's not a good item and mm -hmm. that might save my life and that may not save my life and that's a good piece of foot gear and that one won't mm -hmm. yeah. so it's ltr training systems ltr for learn to return five six three forty four sixty three uh Brian, uh, we're going to run out of time here in just a few minutes. We've got uh, a few minutes left, but is there something in your experience and, and that that we haven't touched on that uh, probably would be a good idea for the listeners to know about survival? Uh, without not having as much time to teach, and I never do as, <laughs> as I would, I'd probably give you one last point. Here's the thing. There's a moment of time that every person gets into called the recognition moment. It's the moment where you say this has gone from a bad day or a fun day recreating or just a bad day at work to a day where I could be killed or my family members could be killed. And, and I don't know how to give everybody that feeling. Okay, I, I have brought a prop, though, to maybe help you a little bit here. Uh-oh. Right? <laughs> and the idea is if you ever hear this sound, you might know you're in trouble. Uh-oh. <laughs> I mean, there's a sound right there that dropped the drowning rate in the United States by almost 25%. Yeah. So if you hear the shark and you hear the Jaws theme song and you're in a car or a snow machine, it's time for you to tighten your seatbelt, close your collar, and look for your medical kit. So, you know, I, I was in an airplane going to Chicago, and uh, Jaws was playing on there. And about the, at the appropriate sound time, the plane started bouncing around. <laughs> there was some trauma on that airplane. Well, I'm convinced that we should replace all uh, automotive horns with that sound right there. They, the people would get out of your way. <laughs> they know what's coming. One uh, last thing, uh, uh, Brian. Uh, I've been told that at the point of rescue is, is a critical time for the rescuer because the person that has in the, the situation uh, will give up. And so if, you, if they're hanging on a boat or, or something that they will actually... Uh, just give, a, give up, and if you don't get them right then, they'll slip away and you don't get a chance. Is, is that your experience? Very much so, and, and there's you know, the whole different phases that a mentality goes through in rescue. But we've been actually <coughs> training rescuers throughout the years to not use the phrase, I've got you, I've got you, I'm here now. Okay, because that basically makes them give up. You I know? see. They think that, okay, now I can give everything up to this man or woman who's here to save me. And, and we basically tell uh, people that, first off, it has happened before. People have died at the moment of rescue, mm -hmm. whether it be exposure or even being uh, fallen off of a helicopter while they're trying to get into it or being rammed by the boat that's trying to save them. Uh, and the other thing is people have just given up because they feel that, that their safety has now been delivered to them. And it's not, th it's not it's the case. It's not their problem anymore. We tell people that you are not going to be saved 
saved until you're warm and safe, okay? <laughs> and that they're giving you a big TV dinner and a bottle of champagne in Providence Hospital, okay? And then basically you know that everything is, is over and it's time for you to reflect on, on what just happened. Well, a, a friend of mine was acquainted with this uh, couple uh, that, that went down in their airplane, the Yukon. Uh, a man and a woman went down. They were there for a long, long time living on a tube of toothpaste and I don't know what all, but... They said that uh, the man had, would, would walk each day down to some willows and come back with a huge arm full of willows for a fire, and that's how they kept it going. And as he was down there uh, at the willows is where this old trapper come walking along and discovered him, and he sat the willows down and let the guy know, hey, we're in trouble, and, the, and he figured he was... And now he couldn't pick the willows up. He didn't have not, did not have the energy to get those willows picked up. He'd lost his focus God, lo yeah. yeah he lost yeah. his focus he it all of a sudden became secondary to, to the fact that somebody was coming now you, and you find that to be yeah, true we see it too we see it when the first time that we stick them in an underwater escape simulator oh. they uh they they know we're there so they panic and they you know i tell people it's like counting on swahili they're supposed to count to five but they count one five nothing in between <laughs> and all of a sudden here their second trip is beautiful because they, it's all behind them now. They know uh -huh. what it's like. They know what to do, and they're not going to give up because they know that they can't give up. Is that part of rescue, the fear of the unknown? Uh, I mean, of survival, if you know, got a little better yeah. chance maybe. Yeah, if yeah. you know what you're up against. It's like yeah. anything, you know. I mean, if a guy has been to the World Series before, guess what? He's not so nervous about the World Series. Sure. He's been there once before, sure. and that's what we try to do. We try to put students through the World Series, if you want to use that as an analogy, and, and then that way they're ready for it. Well, Brian, I uh, appreciate uh, you being here today, and I hope that uh, the listeners have uh, gained something from it. Maybe we've saved someone, if not their life, some discomfort. Uh, again, the number 563-4460, LTR training system, uh, Brian Horner. There's, uh, before we, uh, re we leave the show today, there's just time for one last cast. Today's one last cast is titled, Enough and to Spare. I've read newspaper and magazine articles, viewed videos and movies, received news releases and announcements, and heard radio monologues about our tender environment. Almost always they tell and show some species of animal or plant or area of the earth that's in trouble. Invariably the material will depict a man as an ev evil passenger on the planet. They cry big alligator tears for the real or imagined loss of a given flora or fauna. Many times they point out the numbers of species that ma have man has been responsible for m obliterating out of existence. They even get down to how many are being lost per hour. They are mas masters of manipulating numbers to make their point. There seems to be several things missing in their me message. Uh, generally, the message is followed by a solicitation for money. First, they fail to recognize the trillions of plants and animals that went out of existence before man even entered the scene. Nearly all, if not all, of our so-called non-renewable resources are the remains of plants and animal species prior to the time of man. The coming and going of life has been here since the designer and creator of our world put this sphere in its place in the heavens. Had the protectors of the planet been around in the days of the dinosaur, it would have been saved, uh, but without energy, the man would uh, today would cease to exist. And that's the second thing. They give schooled and knowledged explanations of the demise of a snail or a bug and follow with the attendant big tears. It's practically this, in practically the same breath, they tell of a, of a recent uh, event in terms of the world's histories, the lost civilization of man. But then no tears for the loss of the species of which the teller of the tale belongs. They just uh, grab up their lance and charge after a, another environmental wind, windmill. I'm grateful that we've arrived at the point that we're better stewards of our God-given resources. 
And that brings my third observation. Doesn't anybody ever do anything right? Isn't there at least one evil capitalistic company out there doing most things right? Surely one man on earth is as concerned as the requester of the funds. Not to hear them tell it, we're all bad and they've got to protect everything that's homo sapiens from homo sapiens. In their zeal, if we let them, they'll protect man right out of existence. We can only hope that the haters of man will be the first to go. Once they're gone, maybe those left can live in peace and in harmony with each other. And he who said, behold, there is enough and to spare. When we you go outdoors, take a young person with you and teach them by your example what it means to be a sportsman. Behind the wheel or in the boat or on the road or in the field, take the high trail and practice ethics of good fair chase. Goodbye and good luck. May God bless you in the land of the midnight sun and may your days be happy and long in Alaska's outdoors. Wednesday, as always, we'll bring you accurate and authentic answers for Alaskans by Alaskans. In the meantime, keep in touch.